Bali a butt. <laughs> you were saying? Welcome to episode 105 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight I am joined by the guy that I nearly experienced a riot with in Baltimore when we were there last year, Darren Weeks. And tonight we are going to be talking about the 1861 riots. Welcome to the podcast. And they weren't related to each other, which is pretty rare no. to think about when we talk about this. So how are you? What's going on? We're back in the saddle again, Mary. We back are in the saddle again. Funny that we were just talking about Gerson's Raid with uh, Dr. Tim Smith on our book club. Yeah. Yeah, we were doing doing double duty tonight. We had Dr. Tim Smith with us. He would talk about Gerson's Raid, his fantastic book, The um, the Real Horse Soldiers. That was a good yeah. time. So thanks, everybody, who jumped on and joined us with that. But now we are beyond that. We have to put the horses in the stable and we, we need do. to talk, get back to business, Mary. We do. And I'm about as good at intros as Soy Smith was at um, doing Calvary in the Western Theater. And another job done. Yep. <laughs> so, um, so do you have anything you need to ask me? <laughs> I hadn't had a chance yet. Okay, just making sure we forgotten the forgot the drill. Patience. Um, what are you drinking tonight, and what oh, mug are you, you drinking? I, 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 I honestly did not did not think you were going to ask. Anyway, so I'm drinking. It's called Fluffy Hazy IPA. And this is from uh, from Night Shift Brewery up, up up the street here. And since it is April 19th, and it is the beginning of the battles of Lexington and Concord. I am drinking it out of my Boston Red Sox mug. So I think, believe it or not, only Boston mug I have. So that's what I'm doing. So that's what I have. But again, thank you for asking. And what about you? I am drinking Santilli um, IPA, also out of Night Shift Brewing in uh, lovely Everett, Massachusetts. Actually, I don't know if Everett, Massachusetts is lovely. I've, I don't think I've ever been there yet since I moved here about a year ago. We'll, we'll just we'll just move on from that. Yeah, we will. But yes, we are back with episode 105. We've taken a couple of weeks off because we've been traveling. Um, anybody yeah. that follows us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or was on our YouTube live stream this last weekend, you know that we were uh, doing some tours in the Western Theater, and we were also in Richmond too one weekend. So that was pretty cool. But we were, we uh, were, but it's great. It's great to be recording mm -hmm. again, Mary. It certainly is. Today we are discussing one of the uglier incidents of the early days of the Civil War. Yes. Of course, and that would be Baltimore's Pratt Street Riot, again on April nineteenth of eighteen sixty-one, an event that took place just right after the firing of Fort Sumter in Charleston. In you know April nineteenth, we mentioned sort of hinted at a second ago, is an important day in American history and a famous event around these parts. Um, has a lot to do with this riot, if you think about mm -hmm. it, specifically the British advance yep. to, to Lexington and Concord in 1775 when an advancing column of invaders was fired upon by locals defending their turf. It's the same, and by happenstance, Mary, today's date is April 19th, too. So yep, well, we're recording, and well, even the names that um, come up in this, about the, the riots that we're going to talk about, like the, the Minutemen is one of the names that are used, and that's one of the names from the Revolution as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's a lot of parallels. That April 19th attack on the Redcoats by the Massachusetts militia groups, you know, was chided in England as a vicious attack on its soldiers by a gang of thugs here in Massachusetts. And but it was also heralded as a, as a heroic defense of their home against an invading army mm -hmm. by the people here. Now, 86 years later to the day in Baltimore, Maryland, history is going to basically repeat itself. Again, involving men from Massachusetts, but this time they're going to be on the receiving end of this. Um, 
But I think to get a full understanding of this Bradstreet riot, you have to kind of go back before the war mm-hmm. to get a feel for the city and, and its people at this time. Now, Maryland was a slaveholding state, and, and it's, many of its citizens considered themselves Southerners, and they, they, heck, they still do. February of 1861, President-elect Abraham Lincoln married, the guy with the hat we talk about. The big hat. He's going to be leaving Springfield, Illinois for Washington to take the oath of office that'll take place on March 4th of 1861. Mm -hmm. Now, like many states in the South, Lincoln was not Maryland's first choice for the White House. I mean, look at the numbers. The 1860 election, Lincoln got 2,294 votes in that election from Maryland, 2.48% of the popular of the election, finishing dead last at four presidential choices. A mile behind their first uh, first choice, John C. Breckinridge, yep. Mary of all people, Ooh. a Southern Democrat who got almost 46% of the Maryland votes. You can see he was not the, the choice of a new generation, as they say, <laughs> no. for this election. Now, Lincoln was so unpopular in Maryland, you'd swear he was a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. That's how unpopular <laughs> he was so bad. In, in, in that state. <laughs> but, but anyway, Lincoln is en route to Washington, and he's going to stop and make speeches along the way. One of his scheduled stops was supposed to be in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to be there on February 23rd, 1861. And, you know, like many in the South, people of Maryland, you know, were outraged at Lincoln's election. And soon whispers of, of assassination plots started to be heard. Now, we're not going to yeah. talk about this whole thing. We just kind of want to summarize to set the mindset of the state when this is all going on. The men in charge of Lincoln's safety. You know, there was, don't forget, there was no Secret Service no, at the time. No, it's, um, it's Alan Pinkerton, who That's the name right. will become familiar with in the Civil War as gathering intelligence for McClellan. Right, that Scottish-born Chicago detective who had that National Detective Agency, you know, and he, he's going to do more things later on, like you just said. But for now, his job was to protect the hindquarters of Abraham Lincoln and make sure they're delivered safely along to Washington. Mm-hmm. You know, Pinkerton, he's hearing these assassination rumors tr- as well, and he's convinced they're true because he kind of has to, yep. especially the ones that he's hearing that are based in that heavy pro-sesh town of Baltimore. You know, when Lincoln, he does, when he arrives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Pinkerton told Lincoln, you know, basically to take off that big hat of his. And and when they got to Philadelphia, which was the last stop before Baltimore, you know, he had Lincoln change cars they, they put him in the car that carries all the invalids, yep. and they cut off all the telegraph communication to it. They put Mary and her three three children there in the uh, in a different car, yep. and and they did this obviously, you know, to protect him. And of course, Lincoln's going to regret it. He's going to say later on, people. Call well, it makes him look like a coward, and the, and the press right. had a real like the press had a real field day with it because. Um, I mean, I'm, and I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the, the famous cartoon of Lincoln, like kind of, he's like sneaking around and he's got like the cloak on and they put a like a Scottish cap on him and stuff. But this is, Lincoln has been on this journey, you know, uh, from, from Springfield, Illinois for, for a few weeks at this point. And, you know, Pinkerton's kind of been sniffing things out and he's, I think they're expecting assassination plots just because. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely the war is in the air. Like keep in mind when, when Lincoln is in Baltimore, the civil war has not started yet. It's still a few weeks away. Um, and well, actually a couple months at this point, but like, they're still scared and tensions are still really, really high. 
and of course, you know, like it's not as much of a, it, you know, you don't think you're going to get an assassination attempt in a northern state, but you know, you go into Maryland, which is southern, then that's it's like okay, this is, you know, kind of shit's getting real when we're in this state, right? Well, Pinkerton did have a, a real concern, though. Baltimore, like you said, was a hotbed of secessionism mm-hmm. before the time. He never did find a real plot. Um, there was a local barber there. His name was Cipriani Ferrandini. You know, he ran a barbershop that apparently was a gathering place for Southern sympathizers. When Pinkerton questioned Ferrandini, he denied the plot, but he did say Lincoln surely must die. When well, so you got to wonder if some of that is hyped up as well, just to kind well, of, probably. you know, it's like, like, is Pinkerton telling who he is? Is he's like, I'm the, like, kind of this, like, you know, I'm coming ahead of Abraham Lincoln. I want to know if anything's going on. And it's like, well, I'll just start stirring the pot with this now. You know, local gossip mill, there might be a plot. There might not be. We don't know for sure, you know. Right. I mean, but regardless, the, the you know, the assassination plot, but really, you know, the subsequent riot that we're going to talk about was really caused, really started in 1831 is when it really started. 1831, the city of Baltimore passed a law prohibiting trains mm-hmm. from going directly through the city. So if anyone's going to Washington from north, they would have to disembark at a train station just outside the city, and they have to take a carriage across town just a few miles away where they would pick up a, a second train, which would then let them proceed south to Washington. So there was that gap between the, two, between the train stations that was the real security concern for Pinkerton. And later is what's going to cause that Pratt Street riot. So if you look at it that way, now fast forward, Lincoln's going to he's going to make it through Baltimore by taking the, that earlier unannounced train, and it was scheduled to um, to get to the Calvert Street station. When it pulled up, there was a big crowd waiting to greet the president, but it was only Mary and the kids. Much of the disappointment for the people who wanted to see the guy with the hat. Yep. <laughs> they were just but as popular by, as he was, though. Oh, of course he was definitely. But by April 1861, Baltimore had a real tough reputation of being a nest of secessionist vipers that, that was still that hated the North. The town was actually referred to as Mob Town. Mm-hmm. That's what it was called all along. And the 18, it goes back to 1850s. Speaking of going back real quick, Baltimore was, was the location of all that mob violence of rival gangs called the Pug Uglies. And, you know, think of the movie Gangs of New York that you like. That's exactly that, what I was just thinking. That was Baltimore. Yeah. That's that's what it was, exactly what it was. So this was the attitude of Baltimore when Fort Sumter was fired on on April 1861. And especially a few days after when Lincoln called up those 75,000 volunteers to put down the rebellion that had started in South Carolina. So Maryland, for, you know, for Lincoln, it was a problem, Mary. It's mm-hmm. a problem. And it, it hadn't succeeded yet, it, but due to the proximity of Washington, it needed to stay out of mm-hmm. Southern hands. Now, if you think about it, if, it, if Maryland secedes, Washington is going to be surrounded on all sides. Yep. Now, as much as Lincoln, we, we talked in previous episodes that Kentucky was the key. No, it, it abs- he absolutely had to keep Maryland neutral. That it ha- He had to. Yeah. Now, the other you thing, know, too, with Maryland, though, is, you know, not just its proximity to D.C., but the fact that it is... I mean, I think we can call it a railway hub, even though it's kind of a pain in the rear, pain in the savannah to get, you know, from like, you've got to switch trains or whatever. I mean, it's uh, but I mean, it it just sounds a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. But I think that's one of the reasons too, is they needed it to transport troops as well. Because you think of how many troops are going to start coming through that city, especially after the Civil War starts. Oh, there's, there's no question. I mean, but 
when everything's going on, when you factor in the fact that Baltimore is, is, a, is you know, is, is a powder keg, mm-hmm. there's 75,000 volunteers that are going to, that needed to put down the rebellion. It, it, it really, you know, it infuriated a lot of people in the South, including Baltimore. Um, and because of the city's location, any troops that are going to come from the North to Washington at some point are likely going to have to pass directly through the city. And don't forget that issue with the trains we talked about from 1831. Mm-hmm. That's really the genesis of the whole thing. Now, despite thoughts in Washington that this really wouldn't be a problem since they were merely passing through, um, like those people that go back to Lexington and Concord again, 1775, the residents saw this as an invasion. And that's what we have to really think about it. You have one group who looks at these people as these these militia, these, these marauders, these yeah. gangs – Versus the people in the city who looked at themselves as defending their city against an invasion. So despite being neutral, Maryland did see this as an invasion. And, and they wanted that they, you know, many in the state, Maryland wanted the state to secede. Yeah. And so the concept of the Union troops marching through the state to fight another southern state, it pissed them off more than they already were. Forget April 12th firing at Fort Sumter. Think about think about this now, because now they're going to have these troops march through their city. If you study World War II, and we don't do a lot of World War II stuff here, but there was a similar event that took place with the Germans went to march through Belgium. Yeah. Same exact thing. They were expecting no problems, and they got problems. And so when you look at that, it, it's conceptually you can see why the northern people would have missed the just missed the boat yeah. on this one. But that's what happened. So. The good thing about the Pratt Street riots is there's a lot of colorful characters here Very much. That, that maybe people don't know about. So, you know, introduce a couple of them. The first one is going to be the mayor of Baltimore. His name is George Brown. And no one really knows who he is, but he was a 48-year-old Baltimore resident who has been elected the mayor the previous year in 1860. So he's, so he's new. On April 17th, he's going to issue a proclamation to the city urging the the citizens to calm the F down and just avoid harsh speech, he said. So obviously you would have blasted a lot of Baltimore. (laughs) But that's what he says. He says, remain calm and avoid harsh speech. Okay. That's what, that's what he says. Sure, dude. So, but that's what that's because he, he could feel it. The tensions in the air. The next person is Baltimore's police chief. His name is George Kane. Now, we're going to talk a lot about him, mm-hmm. especially towards the end, too. He, he's very pro-Southern. He was named the, the, the Marshal of Police in 1860. He was an, a, that efficient skullcracker type cop. He, he had no sympathy for hooligans, for gangs in the streets. He, he made it his job to squash that to squash the mobs mm-hmm. that was running through the city. He was big on efficiency, big on discipline. That's who he was. So Kane, though, he was so southern, he bled sweet tea. <laughs> the, he, that was his other issue. Oh my too. god! He wanted no part of the Union troops coming through his city. And when he got wind of the impending troops, he telegrammed uh, one of the agents in the Philadelphia Wil- uh, Wilmington Railroad in Philly for confirmation. And the telegram is going to say, is it true that an attempt we made to pass the volunteers from the north intended to war upon the south over your road today? So he wants to know what, what the heck is going on. Now, people in Washington weren't stupid here. They, they knew what was going on, too. And they knew there was a potential disaster with this. So, um, so on April 18th, 
Secretary of War, a guy named Simon Cameron, Mary, yeah. at this time. This is the guy before mess- Stanton. Right. He's going to message the Maryland governor, a guy, a governor, a guy named Thomas Hicks, and he's going to warn him that whatever the hell you do, you better not try to stop these Union troops. You better not disrupt them. You better not. For be good for goodness sake. That's what he told him. Now, as you can imagine, this, this news of these Union troops potentially coming through Baltimore, it, it spread quickly. Yeah. I mean, this, and basically it spread faster than the time it tells for a DQ blizzard to melt in a summer day. That's how, how fast this news passed through the town. So April 18th, 1861, is in the first Union troops are going to start to approach Baltimore. Now, these are four companies from Pennsylvania, the, the Pennsylvania militia, okay, and two companies of artillery. They're going to arrive at the President Street Station, okay? Now, remember that 1831 city law, Mary, we talked about yeah. that, that prohibited the trains going all the way through the city. So what, that, what does that mean? It means the troops have to get off the train, they have to disembark, and they've got to march their way yeah. down Pratt Street, past Baltimore Harbor, you know, they're going to pass, you know, all, all the, the harbor, all those, those stores right along the front there. And they're going to get on a different train at a place called Camden Station, which is right next to Camden Yards, the baseball yeah. field up here. Amazing you know, baseball Oreos. field. It is. It's a nice place down there. So they're going to get off the train. They're going to walk by that Hooters. They're going to go by that the Irish Hooters. bar. God. They're going to go all the, way, all the way down towards Camden. So <clears throat> most of these Union troops at this point didn't have uniforms. They were dressed in civilian clothes. They didn't really have any weapons. They had to march on foot. But, this, you know, for the most part, there was too many men to ride on carriages, so they had to walk. Now, despite all those southern leanings that Marshall Kane I talked about, yeah. he cared more. More than that, he cared about discipline in his city. And so even though these Union troops were going to march to the city, he knew he needed his police to protect them, to mm-hmm. keep order in the city. He was a professional. And he made sure that there was enough police presence to guard the troops as they made it from all the way down Pratt Street, from Bolton Street, where the president's station is, all the way down to the Camden Station. So he made sure. Now, by then, though, all the hooligans and the, tr- the people had yep. come on the street. Now, hooligans we'll talk about in a second. That's kind of unfair. But the crowds are gathering and they're yelling. The troops are going to start walking down the street. Now, they don't, they're not wearing uniforms. They're wearing civilian clothes. But they're going to start getting screamed at and yelled at. Uh, some of these Baltimore people are going to start throwing rocks at them. Yeah. But there really it wasn't really much of a violent situation besides cat calls. It was some rocks talk. Yeah. There was a, there was a, a black servant named Nicholas Biddle who got hit in the head, mm-hmm. but he really wasn't wasn't hurt all that bad. But it was kind of a test run. That first wave of Union troops did make it to Camden Station without any real incident, and they got on that train. They headed down to Washington. But the problem was going to be the next day. Yeah. Unfortunately for the Union, this is going to change on the next day on April 19th when men from the 6th Massachusetts are going to attempt to do the same thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they depart from Boston on April 17th and they are going to head towards Baltimore and they get warned on the way there that something could happen to them. When right. they, they, when they, they get there, that there could be there could be something happening, you know. And these are guys like you know, just like the the Pennsylvania guys, they're just gonna pass through. They've got to you know switch trains, so they, that means they've got to walk through walk through or either go in a carriage through part of the city 
to get to Camden Yard to get on the Baltimore and Ohio to DC. Right, right. So the six mass is going to the night before they're going to be spending the night they're going to be in Philadelphia the night of the 18th, okay? And they're going to be sleeping in a floor at a place called the Gerard House in, in Philly. They're going to be awakened by an alarm, uh, an alarm bell at one o'clock in the morning, which is ironic because one o'clock in the morning is also the same time that Paul Revere and William Dawes sounded their alarm bell yeah. in 1775. So there are a lot of historical, mm-hmm. you know, comparisons with this. They just, they just are. Some of these massmen, by the way, were descendants. Speaking of of of, this, of the Battle of Battle Road, of, of, of Lexington and Concord, Company E of the Sixth Mass was called the Davis Guards, named after Captain Isaac Davis, who was that first officer killed in the Revolution, fell uh, leading that charge at the Old North Bridge in Concord. Yeah. They were named after him. The Sixth Mass was commanded by Colonel Edward Jones, yeah. who was a 32-year-old merchant from Pepperell, Massachusetts. And he was part of the Massachusetts State Militia since 1854. He was the first militia officer in the state to sign up when Lincoln called for the volunteers. So they, they, they were booming with pride. The regiment was encamped at Faneuil Hall in Boston when they were training. And before they got their muskets and they headed south on April 17, 1861, no doubt they were probably at the Green Dragon Tavern. <laughs> I bet they were. How appropriate because you're, your, you're wearing your Green Dragon shirt today. That's, that's it's an amazing place. That's if you find yourself in Boston, was. visit the Green Dragon. Yeah, it's visit still the there. Green it's still there. But when they, in Boston, when they left, they were greeted by huge crowds cheering. When they get to Philly, they had huge crowds cheering. And they were expecting nothing but, you know, a laurel and a hearty handshake wherever they went. But when they got to Baltimore, they were going to be surprised by that. Now, you mentioned before how they were tipped off. Mm-hmm. Before leaving Philly, Colonel Jones is going to is going to get the tip off about the city of Baltimore and the reputation of, of being called Mob Town. And, and it's really why he woke up the regiment at 1 o'clock in the morning, to be honest, because he was hoping that he could get into the city and gtfo yeah. before everybody woke up that's kind of what he was thinking yeah. but he still gives a, a speech to his troops he does as he well does. um the what he says to him is the regiment will march through baltimore in column of sections arms at will you will undoubtedly be insulted abused and perhaps assaulted to which you must pay no attention whatever but march with your faces to the front and pay no attention to the mob even if they throw stones bricks or other missiles but if you are fired upon and any of you, any one of you is hit, your officers will order you to fire. Do not fire into any promiscuous crowds, but select any man whom you may see aiming at you and be sure you drop him. So he's unlike the Philadelphia guys at day before, these guys have weapons and they're gonna mm-hmm. get twenty rounds of ammunition ammunition for every one of these men. They're gonna have they're gonna have weapons, they're gonna have muskets. So Jones tells them. Don't start, don't start any crap. But if anyone goes at you, drop them. Okay. Can you imagine and saying so that the, to a bunch of mass guys? Well, tell me about it. It's like selfie on a Friday night. I know. But, I'm but, like, but, I go to Boston like three or four days a week, and I'm like, wow, if I had been, you know, <laughs> if I told any Bostonians that, they'd be like, F that. I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. But these these are green volunteers yeah. being told to shoot civilians if necessary. Just keep that in mind too. So, you know, there are two sides anticipating a conflict now with these Massachusetts men approaching the city. The Baltimore people are thinking, we're being invaded. We need to defend our city. The mass guys are like, if we get in trouble, you know, we have to defend yeah. ourselves. Here's the problem, though. For whatever reason, Colonel Jones, he does not telegram Mayor Brown to let them know their arrival time. 
because Mayor Brown would have arranged for Police Marshal Kane to have the police out when they arrived. Now, my guess is that Jones did not trust the Baltimore mayor for yeah. the arrival time, wanted to sneak in and sneak out. But regardless, that lack of trust is going to cause a big issue. And, and for the most part, the 6th Massachusetts was 850 guys. And they're going to arrive in Baltimore, President Street Station, and right around 10 o'clock in the morning is when they're actually going to get there. The distance from President Street Station um, to Camden Station is 1.2 miles mm-hmm. exactly. I walked it. Mary, you stumbled it, but we got there. We made I walked it, it just one, fine. It, okay, sure. It's one. Yeah, you walked it, but it was a stagger. It was 1.2 miles is, is the exact distance to have. That's quite the gauntlet. Like I mentioned before, unlike the Pennsylvania men, these guys are wearing their blue uniforms, mm-hmm. not civilian uniforms. They're carrying muskets and they're armed. And they also have an itchy trigger finger because what they were told. Yep. Well, I certainly would going into that, like, geez, what am I going into? You know, like I'm I'm a new recruit and I'm being told by, you know, kind of my supervisor, like, oh, don't worry, you might get stones, bricks or other missiles thrown at you. But just, you know, ignore it unless they fire at you. Then, you know, use your weapon kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was percolating. Colonel Jones, you know, he anticipated trouble. And so he felt that marching through the city on foot was like was like waving a, a you know a red flag at a bull. He thought mm-hmm. that didn't make any sense. So what he does, instead of walking, he's gonna have the train cars detached and he's gonna keep the men in the trains and he's gonna put horses, a team of horses to take them through down Pratt Street. Pratt Street had a um it had like a rail, so the train would stay on the track. But it wasn't it wasn't like an official train. All they do was yep. have a horse drawn, I guess, horse drawn carriage. But it was on a track. That's what they were going to do. And there were ten total cars, and they're going to load the men onto these cars, and the horses are going to pull them down Pratt Street, thinking it's going to protect the men if things get stuff gets thrown. They're going to yep. be in the cars. Um, so basically, you had an additional twelve hundred unarmed men. From another Pennsylvania militia, militia group under Colonel William Small, who was also there. Now, just like the day before, they were not armed and they did not have uniforms. Yeah. But, but what that means is by 11 o'clock in the morning, you're going to basically have the mobs of Baltimore are going to be lining the streets waiting for all these guys. Contrary to the mental image of a mob, by the way, these were not just all hooligans. These were a lot of them were were very self-respecting citizens. This yeah. was not a Maple Leafs playoff crowd in the street here. <laughs> this 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 was this was a lot of people of much. These are lawyers, merchants. Yeah. Um. These are respected people in Baltimore who were out to defend their city because, like I said earlier, they felt they were being invaded and they came mm-hmm. to defend their city. What yeah. they consider was an invading army. It's also to make this distinction because it really shows the mindset of the city of Baltimore at the beginning of the war as far as how they felt the Union troops were versus versus themselves. So by late morning, you know, the Union is loaded into these 10 cars, these Union men, the six mass, and they're going to begin their journey down towards Camden Station. And, you know, as the cars moved along, it seemed like the citizens got more and more angry as yeah. they got down Pratt Street. The first few cars did arrive at Camden Station without much of an issue. It was those last couple of cars that were really good, bad. Um, you know, it's like you can just imagine it. What starts out as insults, it just it degenerated into yep. rocks being thrown and bricks. And soon citizens at this point 
were starting to try to block the paths of the cars so they couldn't get down Pratt Street. Because don't forget, they're being pulled by horses on a track. Yep. So each car carried four companies. The 10th and last car held companies C, D, I, and L. This is 220 total men. They're going to be under the command of a Captain Alan Follinsby. He's a 37-year-old guy from Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, which is just, just north of here. He happened to be the captain of Company C. He's in charge of these four companies, these 220 men in this 10th and final car. Now, Colonel Jones of the 6th Mass, who commanded the entire regiment, he was in the lead car. Yep. And he soon heard that Pratt Street, the last car, last couple of cars rather, was, was being stopped and being obstructed. And this is the cars containing Fallensby's companies. They couldn't get through. They blocked the road and they were stuck. So unable to continue in the car, Follinsby is going to order his – is probably the worst thing you'll probably do. He's going yeah. to order his men out of the car, and you're going to have to make the rest of the trip on foot. Yeah, and as and, soon as they do that, you know, the, they start to be attacked with, like, you know, bricks and paving stones and people with their oh, pistols yeah. on them. It's like, but, you know, it's just escalating, as you say. But here's the thing, though. Follinsby – Unlike Jones, what does he tell him? He says, under no circumstances are you to shoot on anybody. Unless you feel your life is literally in danger, you do not shoot on anybody. We're just going to walk up the street. We're going to walk a shameless. We're going to get there as yeah. fast as we possibly can. And by the, in the cars that had been arriving at Camden Station at this point were all damaged. The windows are broken with mm -hmm. bricks and rocks. I mean, they went through. They ran the gauntlet. So right around now, this angry mob has grown to over 10,000 people on Pratt Street. Now, you've yeah. been there. You can see how small that road is. Just picture 10,000 people. Oh, it is. When roads. we were doing that, like, kind of, I mean, if you go to Baltimore, you can kind of walk the route that they walked, and there's, like, Civil War trail signs as yeah. well along the way. But, yeah, I was like, wow, I can't believe, you know, it's like, like wow, we're walking where this all happened, you know? But, but here's the thing. Police, Police Marshal Kane. His troops are there and they are protecting the men. What they kind of do is this. Most of the trouble wasn't coming from the sides or the front. It was from behind. It was from the savannah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you had the troops marching and you had the, the mob behind following them, throwing stuff. Yeah. So what does what is, um, Kane do? He has his police line up and walk between them. So you've got the, the six mass guys from those four companies marching. You've got the, the, the mob in the back. And in the middle is a line of police, just separating the two, not letting anybody get through. That's kind of what's going on. So Fallensby is going is to have to run the gauntlet. He's going to have to make that walk. Now, what happens is, as you can imagine, the troops get a little nervous. Yeah. And they start to jog and they start to run. And as they start to run, it seems to it seems incite the mob. It just it's like running from a dog or something. The dog's gonna chase yep. you down. Or from a turkey see, here in right, mass. Oh god. <laughs> but but see, seeing the, the union men starting to run energized the crowd yeah. to really get into it. Because at this point they smelled the fear and they were on him. The leader of the Baltimore mob, his name was George Koning. And he he was seen carrying a rebel flag in one hand and a chain in the other. I picture him looking guy. like Bill the Butcher. In a way, from gangs yeah, in New York, you know. Yeah, he'll he'll get arrested for this later on, yeah. but but it wasn't too long until that six Massachusetts were completely surrounded now, 
rocks are raining down on them despite that the Baltimore police doing everything they can yeah. to protect them. There's, there's always so much you can do. I mean, it's it's ironic that the only thing standing between the mob and the six Massachusetts was a police chief, a Southern sympathizer who probably hated their actual existence, but he was a professional and he was going to do what he yeah. could. The six mass is going to march along and they're going to get to Gay Street, which is by Smith's Wharf, right mm -hmm. on the water there. This is the point where the mob is going to overwhelm the police. They're going to they're going to bum rush the line and they're going to get to the cops and they're going to get on the troops. And at this point, it's every man for himself. Mm -hmm. The men, And this is, this is the point now where the six mass feels they have no choice. Their yeah. lives are in danger. So what do they do? They fire into the mob and then they fire into the mob. And this incites this giant fight between soldiers and the Baltimore police are involved and all of them. So think of that kind of that big fight um, at the beginning of the movie Gangs in New York. That's what it is. It's like people fighting with each other and it's crazy. And you know that some people are fighting against each other that are probably supposed to be on the same side. But it's like everything's getting mixed up and it's becoming very chaotic. But you have to remember going into this, you have to remember kind of like the mood of this. Now, keep in mind, this is you know, what is it like a week after Fort Sumter has been fired upon and this is Just happening. About, yeah. yeah. And so the, the tension is, it's going to be pretty high with this and nobody really knows what's going to happen. Like the first battle hasn't been fought yet. Um, I mean, Sumter, of course, but you know, it's the tensions are really, really high and it just completely explodes here in Baltimore. It, it does. I mean, up at Camden Station now, a guy named Thomas Garrett, he's the president of the Baltimore, Ohio Railroad. He's going to turn to Colonel Jones and he's going to say, hey, not for nothing. Your soldiers are firing upon the people in the streets here. Jones is going to respond back. Um, they must have been fired upon first then because those are my orders. And um, so he's going to – and Garrett's going to say, nope, they're firing. No it's like, well, we got other orders. Yeah, I mean in, in every, everything at this point, I mean it's, it's just total hysteria. Around this time, the first Union soldier is going to be killed, and that's going to be a private named Luther Ladd, mm -hmm. 17 years old. Uh. He's a mechanic from Lowell, and he's going to be marching past Gay Street, and somebody on the roof is going to drop a big piece of iron and get him right in the head. Uh. He's going to die right in the street. That, that's how he's going to go. Harper's Weekly is going to later publish Ladd's photo, calling him the first victim of the war. He probably probably was. Yeah, realistically. Yeah, even though he's, I was reading about him, and even though he, you know, he's killed by civilians or whatever, he's still kind of the first casualty of the Civil War on the Union side. I mean, it, for the most part, that's that's what exactly what it was. One of the rioters, he's going to describe it. He's going to write, "A soldier struck by a stone fell at my feet. As he fell, he dropped his musket, which was immediately seized by Edward Beatty, a port customs officer who raised it to his shoulder." Fired into the column. He then asked if anyone had a cartridge. I gave him one and showed him how to reload. The Great. men responded with a volley. With the crowd responded with a volley, and the crowd responds with pistol shots, stones, and clubs. So now you've got the both sides firing at each other now. So yeah. you can see this is getting worse and worse and worse. This mm -hmm. is this is this you know, bad day for mother. You know, so this is complete mayhem. The troops and the civilians are both under fire. This is an absolute blood frenzy now of just just crazy violence. Um, and again, you have the Baltimore residents. 
defend yeah. in their minds they're defending their city against an army in these union troops who have been receiving accolades everywhere they went and going what the hell is going on here you know captain Follinsby, he's going to order a battalion to form on the street and try to control his men and bricks are falling on them from all directions uh they're getting fired on by bullets now from surrounding buildings so he's going to tell his troops forget it fire at will do what you got to do the troops began to run around and when they did again that mob was more excited by watching these troops run there was absolute panic. Yep. The city included some of the most respected citizens I mentioned before. That, like, this was not Goderich, Mary, on Fridays here. Okay, <laughs> This is I pretty mean, tame he, compared to Goderich. Well, I mean, I mean president in the mob was a lawyer named Henry Howard, who, who happened to be the grandson of Francis Scott Key, who later who, he would later become a soldier in the Confederate Army. Yep. So he, he, was, he was there. Right around this moment, I got him. You know, George Brown, the mayor of Baltimore. Yeah, he is going to arrive, and, and he is going to do his best Kevin Bacon Animal House routine, saying "All is well, all is well." <laughs> try to slow it down. He's going to note that he he saw the troops were firing wildly, sometimes yep. backwards, sometimes over their shoulders while the mob was pursuing, in shouts and stones and the occasional pistol shot. The uproar was furious. That's what he was saying. Now, the, like a lot of things we talk about, it's kind of tough to imagine. This one's kind of easy to see what the hell's going yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, I'm imagining kind of like, I don't know, it reminds me of Gangs in New York, just the chaos of that first fight um, in the opening scene of the movie. But to, again, you have to remember like how high tensions are as well, yeah. like as they're as they're going into this. And you, you also don't know, you know, it'd be interesting to read newspapers in Baltimore in the days leading up to this, like what, what was the, like, was there anything done being, you know, do, being done to f kind of fuel this as well? Like what kind of rumors were going around in that, you know, like that barbershop that you mentioned, like, yeah. like well, everything well, is building one after the other. And it's like, like I said, it's like a powder keg and it's going to explode. And it does in Baltimore. Well, Br Brown is going to, the mayor Brown is going to find phones, be introduced himself. Hey, I'm the mayor of Baltimore, by the way. And he begged him to tell his troops to stop running. He goes, "What you know? Whatever you do, because your running is inciting them. Just stop running." And Follinsby, you know, they he did by all accounts. But Follinsby's like to the mayor, not for nothing, but why are you guys? Why are they attacking us? We didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. We're just walking through here. Um, Brown saw the situation later and, and just and just told him and this. This is the amazing thing about it. Brown tells him, "Here's what you should do: stop running." Set up a battle line, fire a volley at them. Now, how many mayors do you know are going to tell an army to fire into your own citizens? But he figures that's how it's going to slow them down. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Yeah. This rolling violence is going to continue, and there's going to be a group of about 50 Baltimore police officers under Marshal Kane. They're going to arrive, and they're going to start busting heads of the mob because they're going to try to stop this riot. Of where the violence has taken place, Kane is going to lead a, a group of police with pistols drawn. Kane himself is going to yell at the crowd, "Keep back, or I will shoot!" Mm -hmm. And then at this point, he says the at this point when he pulled the police pulled their guns on him, he said the the mob recoiled like water from a rock. That was a phrase he used. Wow. So, I mean, it was you know what's crazy about this whole thing though was both sides consider themselves to be victims. Yeah. If you really think about it, 
The Union troops felt they were being attacked without provocation, while the Baltimore people felt that they were being invaded. Yeah. What resulted is an absolute, complete melee. The Baltimore Sun, the next day, is going to write about this. And they're going to write, as one of the soldiers fired, he was struck with a stone and knocked down as he attempted to arise another, as he tried to attempt to rise, another stone struck him in the face. He crawled into a store and begged pitifully for his life. That's what the newspaper said. I mean, but not all these rioters, we talked about defending their city. Not all these rioters were full of patriotism either. I mean, no. many, you know, many Baltimore stores were looted, buildings were damaged. Well, it's a typical you know, tele- thing that happens during a oh, riot. Yeah. Like, like shit's going to go down that people oh, yeah. are going to be like, well, I'm not on oh. either side, but hey, here's oh, yeah. a store. Let me go, walk go, in and go, loot it. Go crazy. Yeah. Telegraph lines are cut. Somebody spray painted Led Zepp rules on the side of the school building. <laughs> I mean, they, anarchy they, they signs was, everywhere. Uh, absolutely. So a lot of things were going on with this. You know, by this time, the six masts, they're still moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, are, they approach Light Street. And four total soldiers at this point had now been killed. This is Private Addison Whitney, uh, Charles Taylor, as well as Corporal Needham, Sub- uh, Sumner uh, Needham, uh, along with Private Ladd. So they, they've died in this riot so far. Four, you know, four U.S. troops have died. Bonesby is going to order a line established at Washington Station. And a volley was fired into the crowd. So he's going to fire that volley. Yep. Many, many in the crowd had pistols. They fired back. I mean, they were still tossing bricks. I mean, where the hell are they getting all these damn bricks? But they, they're getting bricks. Um, <laughs> they're just grabbing them randomly. Is there a brickyard nearby? Yeah. Bricks for sale. <laughs> bricks. You know, give me 10. You know, but it really, and on the other side of it, at this point, there were 12 Baltimore citizens who had also been killed, including a child. And it was William Reed mm. who was sitting on a dock. And he was shot in the stomach by an Aaron bullet, and he died. Blood oh, to death. God. You know? That's so terrible. This, oh, it is. It absolutely is. But this six mass is finally going to make it to Camden Station. They're going to yep. run that gauntlet. They're going to make it. And um, they were when they got there, it was about 1.30 in the afternoon. And they got loaded into these into cars waiting for them, these train cars. They were safely on the train um, to Washington. But these soldiers at this point were bloodthirsty for vengeance themselves. There were stories they were firing out the window into people who anybody was walking by. I mean, they were they were pissed. Yeah. I mean, they I mean they lost four of their own by simply walking down the street. And you know, for the most part, Colonel Jones, he wanted he wanted nothing to do with this. He says, just stop. He goes, he goes, I'm afraid the mob is gonna go down the road and st- derail the train and kill us all so just stop and eventually what's going to happen is they're going to finally get going the six mass those 10 companies what's mm-hmm. left of them are going to get to washington dc later in the afternoon but the thing about it though is with the troops gone that's not the end no it's not and, and i think the one thing too to remember is you know um these are guys that are coming from the north like you know duh but like you know they're coming from massachusetts which is very much I mean, obviously, it's a northern city. There's a very different attitude there towards what is going on. I think when they get to Baltimore, they see, they start to see how the South feels. They start to see that this is a war and that it's like, you know, it's kind of like, wow, this is real now. Like, these people are angry. They don't want to be part, like, you know, they're seeing a completely different attitude, I think, to what they've encountered, not just in Massachusetts, but in New York and Pennsylvania and all that. And Baltimore, Maryland is a completely different ballgame for these guys. Well, if you're 
Right. The troops are gone. Now, if you're the mayor, your governor Hicks, you're your mayor Brown, mm-hmm. your police officer Kane, you're sitting around thinking, you know, what do we just do? And what they really did was they, the city of Baltimore declared war on the United States that day. Yeah. If you really think of yeah, it, they, and they knew good. it. And they knew that. And, you know, Mayor Brown, don't forget, he's been in office for about a year. Yeah. And and he knows that, you know, they're they're in for it. Now, this is a guy who put himself in harm's way. Uh, and, but he knew mm-hmm. um, that no matter what happens, this cannot happen again. We cannot allow more federal troops coming through the city. Yeah. This is it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Brown was not a, was not a Southern sympathizer. But he was an anti-war Democrat. He doesn't. He doesn't want to see the city, mm-hmm. his city, burned down. So what happens is, the Maryland State Legislature they're going to pass a law giving all police powers in Baltimore to Marshal George Kane. So for the most part, Kane is going to be the most powerful person in the city at this point. They're going to give him the keys to the entire store. Now he's a hothead anyway. He's a pro-secesh, hates the North. Yep. But he, you know, he's a professional policeman. But he—that's who he was. And due to this riot and this, the twelve citizens being killed, including that small boy, Baltimore got deeper and deeper in southern sympathy and hatred to the north. Yeah. It's not just not going to get better. So what happens? The city of Baltimore is going to call a meeting. They got an emergency meeting. It's going to be called the Monument Square meeting. It's just three hours after the mass troops have gone. That's how soon this meeting is. And they had all agreed that no more federal troops coming to the city cannot be done. No way. Maryland, uh, his, the governor, uh, Governor Hicks, who was not very popular. They didn't like him too, too much. He was a non-secesh type politician. He was not pro-union, but he wasn't pro. But they didn't like him because he wasn't he wasn't a secesh politician. He agreed. And he basically said, well, we need to bring this this flag of the city uh, together. And the flag is going to be in defiance of Lincoln's actions, which was sending a, an army through a peaceful city to put down a rebellion yeah. in another state. Hicks is going to say at this meeting now that he's changing his colors now. He's going to say, I, consi- I coincide with what, you, what your worthy mayor has said. I bow in submission to the people. I am a Marylander. I love the union but I will suffer my right arm to be torn from my body before I will raise it to strike a sister state. I mean, it's a lot of the, a lot of the, the dialogue you hear in yep. South Carolina is now coming into yep, Maryland. Exactly. Yep. So Hicks, what's, what's his Hicks basically saying? He's saying Maryland is seceding from the union. That's kind of what he's saying. Yep. Governor Hicks and Mayor Brown messaged Lincoln to tell him their decision about no more troops coming through our city. It's not going to happen. Don't try it again. The city also called on militia groups from around Maryland and Virginia to come in to help defend the city. The Frederick Rifles from Maryland showed mm-hmm. up. Um, rumors the Rosewood's Clown came. There was a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the Rosewood's Clown. But they were all basic. And don't forget, this is two days after Virginia seceded. Two days. This is all going on. So you're having these militia groups all kind of converging into mm-hmm. Maryland to help defend the state. I always think of the Warriors movie. You know, they're all kind of all these gangs getting together, yeah. right? Baltimore was on the ready and was all set, you know, to turn that city into a fortress based on these rumors that more troops were going to be coming. And those rumors mm-hmm. started floating. More troops are coming. More troops are coming. So 
Just after midnight now, on April 20th, a telegraph is going to arrive telling Police Marshal Kane that guess what? A regiment from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania is on its way. And, and basically, he, along with Mayor Brown and Governor Hicks, uh, they all agreed that, you know, we need to do something. So what do they start doing? They start tearing up their, their own railroad tracks or burning bridges. They destroyed five miles of railroad tracks. They burned the Gunpowder River Bridge as well as the Black River Bridge. And they cut all the telegraph lines that surround the railroads. They're going to just make it difficult. They're going to do it. Uh, the next morning, April 20th, guess what happens? All the mobs start showing up again. Yep. They're all coming back on the streets, right? They're ready to attack the next troops that come through the city. It's a, it's a game now. Now, in, in the North, as you can imagine, the Northern Papers were furious at this. Yeah. They wanted Baltimore attacked. This they, they, they said, you know, the Civil War has opened up and exploded in the city of Baltimore. What, you know, what are you going to do about it? Mayor Brown? He was authorized to raise five hundred thousand dollars to help to to help defend Baltimore, and he got the money from local merchants, local banks, including including a sizable donation from a wealthy local merchant named Johns Hopkins, yeah. married, who, who Mayor Brown actually would return the favor in eighteen seventy six by helping found a university in his name in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins University. Yeah. So there are tra- there are, you can trace that back to these Pratt Street riots. That's very interesting. Dolls. Very cool. It, it, it just is. But by the morning of April 21st, Mayor Brown is going to learn that five to 10,000 Union troops are just a couple of miles away and they're heading right into Baltimore. So he's thinking, oh, shit, we're in for it now. So church bells, this is a Sunday morning. Church bells start ringing to warn the citizens. Many of them are already sitting in church hearing about this. It turns out that it's not five to 10,000 troops. It's 2,500 unarmed Pennsylvania volunteers again yeah. from Harrisburg under a guy named General George C. Wincoop, who smartly decided when they got to a place called Cockeysville, Maryland, that we ain't going to Baltimore. You yeah. have a freaking mind. So Wincoop's going to stop them. It's safe to assume, by the way, that if Wincoop entered Maryland, I mean, entered Baltimore, Maryland officially secedes. I think at that very moment they're going to officially secede. Oh, I secede. think so too. I think you know? he, yeah, made a good decision here. No, it's funny. Late, just by later in the morning, this Wincoop guy, he's going to have cavalry run-ins later on with Nathan Bedford Forrest mm-hmm. and John Hunt Morgan. And you know where he's buried? He's buried in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, in the shadows of the Yingling Brewery. Nice. Is where Coop. Wow. So if you're having, if you want to go there for the tour, if you drinks, go see Wincoop. You know, but. You know, around this time now, Brown, Mayor Brown is going to be, he's actually going to go to Washington to meet with Lincoln, mm-hmm. Simon Cameron, and Winfield Scott. And where they're all, in, and they all basically agree okay, here's the deal. We're going to leave Baltimore alone. Any future troops from the Union are going to have to find a different route. Um, they have to get a whole shitload of dimes, and they're going to have to go find a, a different way into town. Yep. That's how it's going to work. Yep. And, and, but Lincoln didn't promise. He goes, I can't promise you. That no troops will ever enter Baltimore, but I, I will. We got you, okay. Now, if you're Mayor Brown, you're like, okay, thank God, because yeah. you finally feel calm for the first time in a couple of days. He's going to return to Baltimore feeling confident that he helped stop a potential catastrophe. But what he didn't know was this: before the meeting even happened, Lincoln had decided he was going to punish Baltimore. 
and he was going to keep Maryland in the union at all costs. It was mm-hmm. too important not to, like we said before. Yeah. Six days later, April 27th, 1861, Lincoln is going to impose martial law in Baltimore at General Order 100, which suspended civil law, denied habeas corpus, and giving soldiers the power to arrest citizens without cause. Yep. So if you're Mayor Brown who did it, don't forget, this is the guy who put his life on the line to keep the peace, including putting his own, like I said, his own life in jeopardy. He himself is going to get arrested on September 12th, 1861 without cause. He will spend 14 months in prison in Fort Warren here in Boston Harbor. That's where he's going to go. That's, that's where he's going to get pretty, sent. Yeah, that's, uh... you know, oh yeah. Police Marshal Kane, you know, he was the one who protected the six Massachusetts troops as they entered the city. He's going to get arrested. Um, he had further, he's a big Southern sympathizer, but he's going to get arrested too on June 27th of 1861. Ironically, when the six Massachusetts comes back to Baltimore under Benjamin Spoon's butler, who's in charge, yep. he's going to basically take possession of the city thing called Federal Hill, Federal Hill, and he's going to have George Kane arrested. Now, George Kane is a fascinating study. If you, if you ever studied George Kane, mm-hmm. but he's also going to be a guest of the state of Massachusetts here, Fort Warren. He's going to be sent up here to Boston Harbor, too. He's going to be incarcerated. He's going to be freed in 1862. Guess where he's going to go? He's going to go to Montreal. He's going to go to Montreal. Montreal. Oh my gosh! I was just like I was just thinking of Montreal, just because there's there is a bit of a Canadian connection to this. Many many years later, it gets it gets even better with Kane. Kane's he's he's in Montreal in 1864. He's an operative in Canada now. That's what he's going to be doing for the Confederacy. He's going to meet with a young actor from Baltimore named John Wilkes Booth, who's going to talk to him about a kidnapping plot that he's going to hear about. And a year later, in 1865, he's now a member of the Knights of the Golden Circle in Baltimore, who will meet again wow. with Booth. Now, if, the, if you've seen the movie National Treasure 2, there's a scene at the beginning where, where the KGC yep. operative meets with Ben Gates' great-grandfather, that scene in Washington. Um, that character is loosely based on George Kane. That's, that's so cool. But that's who he was. After the war, Kane becomes the mayor of Baltimore in 1877. And he's going to die in 1878. But but when you look at the Pratt Street riot in the end, it's one of the uglier moments in all of American history. Mm-hmm. And it really foreshadowed what was, what was going to come. A Union army... Uh, fighting to put down a rebellion versus you know versus citizens defending their homes against what they consider an invasion by an enemy force. We hear that a lot about people in the South about fighting for the war. Um, Eighteen sixty-one, bought a Baltimore poet named James Randall. He's going to later become the president of Washington's Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. Go Hoyas, right? He's going to write a poem called "Maryland, My Maryland." which would basically become the state's official song that was based on the Pratt Street Riot. And it was the official song until just two years ago, actually, until they changed it. But the first stanza of this song, this poem that became the Maryland State Song, it says, The despot's heel is on thy shore, Maryland. His torch is at thy temple door, Maryland. Avenge the patriotic gore that flecked the streets of Baltimore. Be the battle queen of your Maryland, my Maryland. So the state song, the beginning of the state song, is written about the Pratt Street riot. 
That's how significant it was in Baltimore's history, Maryland's mm-hmm. history. And it tells an interesting story of their attitudes towards the war, towards the North, how they consider themselves a Southern state in Maryland, and how everything went bad. And when you think about these these battles, you think about a lot of the stuff, you think about the linear formation, marching yeah. up for me. This is a situation where this is complete mayhem. Mm-hmm. Four Union troops died, 12 civilians died, all because they were walking through their, their city by two different sets who completely had different ideas of what they were supposed to be doing there. And it's unfortunate, but it really set the beginning off and really should have dispelled the notion that this was going to be a quick and easy war just yeah. by how hard how hard those Baltimore people are going to fight for this. Oh, absolutely. And like I said, I think mm, it, some of it's got something to do with the fact that these troops that were coming through are coming from the north and they had witnessed something completely different than what they had seen in the north. You know, they're finally seeing um, how the southerners feel about the war and all of a sudden it's real. Um, there, I, I do have an account that from after this, which is Howard's, shockingly, um, but Howard, he actually passes through Baltimore once they open up passage again with the third main who he's commanding. Um, and this is, I, I'm not too sure how long after the riots, but um, he said, after the bloody passage of the six Massachusetts through Baltimore, a few days before our arrival in that city, the, the, the succeeding troops from the north had been conveyed to Washington in a roundabout way via Annapolis, thus avoiding the riotous mobs. My regiment was among the first to resume the direct route. In order to be able to protect ourselves in that city, I had ordered the men supplied with 10 rounds a piece of cartridges. So Howard is like, you know, I don't think anything would have happened, but he's obviously been kind of (laughs) scared into thinking, yeah, it could. Um, He and his men are going to have a police escort um, when they go through Baltimore to get from one station to the other. Um, he said there was um, a huge crowd waiting for them. And of course, like he writes in his memoirs, I thought what had happened to the six Massachusetts was going to happen to us. Um, businesses were still closed when he was there. And Howard said it was the city was very gloomy. No flags were flying anywhere. And he said all people appeared under some fear of oppression. So you have to wonder if this is, you know, if he's passing through after habeas corpus, like what Lincoln did if this is the effect of that too. And Howard ends up having dinner with a very union-leaning gentleman who says, they declared that the bloody riot which had stained their streets with blood was not the cause as claimed, but simply the occasion of the rebellious conduct of prominent city and state officials. And then Howard also says, matters just then, not only in Baltimore, but in many other parts of Maryland were dark and uncertain. It was a critical period. Families were dividing and old friends at feud. So, Howard's recounting of this, like going through there after the riots, seeing how it is that it's dark and gloomy, businesses are closed down. He's seeing the aftermath of this and what it has done to kind of, you know, basically he says they're they're oppressed. That's his impression of it. Yeah, I mean, it just you know the the, the old the old um, adage is true. You're gonna you're gonna fight for your Gonna fight for your territory, and that—that's pretty much what it was. Yeah, but it's certainly certainly what it was. It was a it, it was the war in a microcosm. It was it was defending against. It was volunteer, volunteers versus citizens. It was however you want to call it, but it was certainly it was certainly bloody. It was violence, 
and it, it was the first instinct of maybe you know the, I mean, these these people for the most part didn't grow up with violence. I mean they didn't. No. Um, they they but they knew how to defend. They could rile each other up. It, once that ball got rolling, once those those four companies are running up the street. It, the, it was the dinner bell being rang, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And you got to give, give credit to, to Brown, to Kane, even to Hicks for the most part, but especially Kane and Brown for doing what they could um, to, to protect those troops and get them through there. They had to think that when this was all said and done, they were going to be punished for it, which they, they certainly were. But again, um, it's a tough situation for all for all these guys to put up with that. And it was the beginning of, of what was going to be a long and brutal, brutal war. And that's... Yeah. Unfortunately, that, that's the Press Street Riot. It was, it was the, um, it was the beginning. It really was. And a lot of people took notice of it, and then it wasn't too long after that that you had, um, you had the real fighting starting at Bull Run. Not yeah, far away. Bull Run was not long after that. I mean, we, you know, you flash forward, kind of, it's a hundred and something years later in Canada. We had our own thing in October of 1970, where our Prime Minister had to declare kind of martial law, suspend habeas corpus with the War Measures Act because of what was happening with, um, basically, a separatist group in Quebec with what was happening there. So similar situation, you know, um, you look at pictures from Montreal at that time and where it was really, really bad. And it's kind of similar to what Howard describes, you know, it's quiet, it's gloomy, businesses are closed down, you know, it was a time and, and that order, that war measures act was not just, it's not like in Baltimore where it's one place, you know, Lincoln only had it going over a certain area. It was the entire country that was under that. But Montreal, especially, you know, um, I was looking at some pictures from it. It just reminds me kind of what Howard is describing of this kind of like, you know, it's like they really shut down after that, you know, with what happened. It was. But it's a good story. It's just definitely worth it. There's a lot of good sources you can read about this. Uh, but I would definitely, uh, if you're interested in reading about that, do it because it tells it tells a great story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the what's Baltimore- coming up for us next? Um, I was going to say, first of all, the Baltimore riots is definitely something that needs to be studied more in the Civil War because it's kind of like the battle before the big battle sort of thing. Um, Next for us, we are going to be having Dr. Peter Carmichael from Gettysburg College and Civil War Institute join us next week to talk about um, the Futch Letters, which is a soldier who was in the Civil War. Um, We're going to be talking about that. Um, and then after that, we are going to be doing some episodes, um, Pickett's Mills, Spotsylvania, uh, Andersonville, talking about some and tying those into some of the um, the stuff that we've seen recently on our travels. Um, we will be having another roundtable. Um, we will be getting back to those in the month of May. We took April off from that just because we had, both of us had a lot going on with traveling and school and work and all that. Um, but yeah, and we will be announcing our next book club soon too, which is probably going to be happening in June yeah. or July. Yeah. The Futch letters are interesting. If you, if you haven't read those, they're really, it tells a very interesting story about a different type of soldier. You know, you hear a lot about soldiers fighting for glory and they want to fight. It, it, it tells a story about a, uh, about a, um, illiterate North Carolina soldier from the third North Carolina who didn't want to be there, didn't want to fight, wanted to get home. All he ever wanted to do was get home. His brother gets killed at Culp's Hill in Gettysburg. And, and finally he um finally he's gonna he's gonna leave. He's gonna go AWOL and he's gonna be caught. And it's it's a real sad story. Um, but it's it's a it's a really good one. So we'll talk about his letters. He was illiterate, so his letters were difficult to read. His but, re- letters um, are really interesting to read. And just um, if anybody is wanting to have a look or or read about that, um, Dr. Carmichael has them in his book, "The War for the Car- Common Soldier," which was released a few years ago. 
Um, he devotes, I think it's a whole chapter. Am I correct, Darren? In that he he does his book is his soldier stories, but the Fudge letters are interesting. Yeah, he's 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 the, he's an expert and he's right up our alley talking about soldiers and their stories. So we'll enjoy talking about that. So off we go, Mary. So any final words from you, Fincheru? Oh, thank you um, for bringing it as you always do during this, um, and thank you to our listeners for supporting us through these 105 episodes. I don't know how we got here, but somehow here we are. So thank you for for all that. Yeah, it's, been a, it's been a good it's been a good 105 so off to the next 105 all right guys so off we go we appreciate you listening so again thank you for everybody who joined us in our book club earlier with um with tim smith and uh appreciate the uh, the support and we will talk to you all as they say on the other side okay see y'all later peace out bye <laughs>